This is an ABC podcast. A quick warning, this episode touches on the topic of suicide. Take care while listening. That's fizzing, okay. Now it's smoking while fizzing. I'm standing in a chemistry lab at Sydney University and I'm watching a small pea-sized chunk of metal slowly disappear in a bowl of water. So it's bubbling away and it's moving around the surface of the water. Yeah. I'm just going to see like a if... Pac-Man. <laughs> it is a little bit like a Pac-Man. Okay, so now it's just disappeared. Our little pebble is completely gone, I think. It's not vanished. It's reacted. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> More accurate. The substance we've made react, not disappear, is the lightest metal on Earth. It's got its origins at the very beginnings of our universe, and it's taken in the form of a pill by thousands of Australians every day. Oh, and it can be flammable, so stand back. So that was a relatively small amount. If we had like a much bigger chunk, would we see like an explosion or what would happen? I've never seen an explosion because I'm a really super safe chemist. Um, but if we had a really large piece, it would react much more vigorously, produce much more hydrogen, and yet it could set on fire. That, by the way, is Associate Professor of Chemistry, Dr. Alice Motion. And this mystery metal we're talking about, it's lithium. So lithium is one of the three elements that were first created in the Big Bang. So over 13 billion years ago, I think about 13.8 billion years ago. Makes my head hurt. <laughs> but the majority of lithium wasn't formed in the Big Bang. The majority of it is thought to form in exploding stars. As far as origin stories go, that's a pretty great one. But one of the most remarkable things about lithium is that when taken in its salt form, which thankfully isn't flammable, it can have a profound impact on our mood. For six years, the lithium was my saviour. It absolutely changed my life. To the point where it can stop a person who's feeling suicidal from feeling suicidal. I knew I didn't actually want to end my life, but there was something happening in my brain and my body that just wanted everything to stop and was making me do these things. I became a passenger, you know, to, to my life. I, was, I just had no control as to what I was thinking and what I was doing, and it was terrifying. Lithium may even be helping whole communities feel better without them knowing it. We haven't seen anything that sort of explains why that would happen other than the levels of lithium themselves in the tap water. Today, we're bringing you a summer highlight from the past year, the story of this wonder element, the magic ion, as it's sometimes called, and its remarkable impact on mood. You know the soft drink 7-Up? This is a commercial from the 90s. Well, when it first came out in 1929, it had a key extra ingredient. You'll find a hint in its original convoluted name. Bib label lithiated lemon lime soda. It contained lithium. Not in its highly reactive metal form, to be clear, but in one of its ingestible compound or salt forms. In this case, lithium citrate. The theory as to the name is that the 7 and 7-Up seven either relates to the seven ingredients that made up this soda or the atomic weight of lithium, which is 6.9. That's Dr. Walter Brown, a clinical professor of psychiatry at Brown University in the U.S., he recently wrote a book called Lithium, A Doctor, A Drug, and A Breakthrough. 
And does the up refer to, you know, its effect on mood? It might. That never occurred to me, but it might. It was clearly marketed when it came out as a lithium-containing substance. At the time, lithium was seen as a bit of a cure-all, a healthy extra something to add to anything, kind of like the turmeric of its day. There were all kinds of lithium products on the market. Lithium water, lithium beer, etc. The problem is, too much lithium, unlike turmeric, can kill you. Concerns over the risk of lithium poisoning prompted the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to eventually ban its use in soft drinks in 1948. After that, 7-Up rebranded, adopted its current name, and went lithium-free. But the makers of 7-Up had tapped into an idea that had been around for centuries. The ancient Greeks, probably Romans also, and Native Americans, did bathe in mineral waters that probably contained lithium. Serratus of Ephesus, an MD from the second century, prescribed mineral waters actually for people who were manic and had other psychiatric problems. The Romans and the Greeks, they didn't know about lithium itself, as the element wasn't identified until 1817. But it's now thought some of the healing properties they attributed to the mineral springs had partly to do with the presence of lithium salts. In fact, the town of Lithia Springs in the U.S. state of Georgia sits on an important spiritual site for the Cherokee Native Americans. They believed in the healing powers of the springs there, a belief that was later adopted by the general American population. People came in the late 19th century from all over the country to bathe in those springs because of the lithium in there. Now, whether or not the lithium actually did anything is the question. But certainly people thought that there were health benefits. And in fact, if I remember correctly, there was a train that went directly from New York City to Lithium Springs, Georgia, to bring people to it. Presidents went down there, Theodore Roosevelt, McKinley. And they also made a big point of taking bottled water from the springs back home with them and would drink it. So all of that is to say there have been these vague, nebulous and untested ideas about the mental health benefits of lithium for a long, long time. But in the 1940s, lithium's mood-moderating effects came into sharper focus. In a really roundabout sort of way, lithium was discovered to be highly effective in treating one particular mental illness, which affects millions of people worldwide. At the heart of that story is an Australian doctor named John Cade. John Cade was born in 1912 in uh, Horsham. Is that a place that you're... uh, Yeah, yep, Victoria. Yeah, it's in Victoria, about 190 miles from Melbourne. Does that sound right? John Cade's father was a GP and psychiatrist who later worked as a superintendent at a number of psychiatric hospitals. And in those days, the family of the superintendent lived on the grounds of those hospitals. So John Cade really grew up among psychiatric patients. That's where his house was. As an adult, he followed in his father's footsteps, getting his medical degree at the University of Melbourne in 1934. Started off with an interest in pediatrics, but then shifted his interest to psychiatry. And then, like his father before him, he enlisted in the Australian Expeditionary Force at the outset of the Second World War and following the defeat at the Battle of Singapore. 
he was uh, incarcerated at the notorious Changi prison for three and a half years. This time as a prisoner of war at Changi would turn out to be a pivotal period for Cade. While he was at Changi, he became interested in sort of the biological basis of mental illness. As the only doctor there with any psychiatric experience, they put him in charge of a psychiatric ward. And he was convinced that some of the serious mental illnesses he saw arose out of some kind of brain disease or pathology, which he would note on the autopsies. So he, after three and a half years at Changi, he returned home with the idea in mind of wanting to do research on mental illnesses. And he sort of had this idea that manic depressive illness could arise like thyroid disease from an excess production of some bodily substance. This hunch John Cade had, it wasn't the conventional way of thinking about mental illness at the time. People generally thought a bad upbringing was to blame. And so, for his first bit of research, Cade did something rather bizarre. He started collecting urine from manic depressive patients, as they were referred to back then, and injecting that urine into guinea pigs. This was a rather crude study, but basically he, he studied how much urine it would take to kill a guinea pig as a way of measuring its toxicities. And there was some evidence that the urine from manic patients was more toxic in this way, without going into all of the details. But in the context of studying these urines in guinea pigs, he started injecting some of the guinea pigs with lithium urate and lithium carbonate as a way of examining what might be the toxic substance. And he noticed that when he gave guinea pigs lithium salts, they would become tranquilized. And so noting that, it occurred to him that it might calm manic patients down. And so he went next door to the lab and started giving lithium to patients who were severely manic. Remember, this was a time before ethics committees had to be consulted on experiments. And they all got better. He gave it to 10 patients and they got remarkably better. For the first time, some of them were able to leave the hospital and take jobs. And uh, he let people in Australia know about this. And that was really the observation that started this. Cade had discovered the first effective treatment for manic depression, which is now called bipolar disorder. His seminal research was published in the Medical Journal of Australia in 1949. And so so what was the response to his research when he published? What did the psychiatric community think at the time? They thought a number of things. First of all, other psychiatrists in Australia started using lithium and found the same thing that Cade did, that it worked and it was remarkably effective. They also found that patients were getting side effects and a few patients died. So there was a certain amount of uneasiness about its use. The problem was the amount of lithium needed to have a therapeutic effect was not far off from what would be considered a toxic dose. But as other psychiatrists built on Cade's research, they monitored the dosing more closely and found using lower levels of lithium could still help patients get better without killing them. That helped shepherd lithium treatment into the mainstream in the following decades. But Cade himself walked away from the treatment he discovered. Part of it, he was concerned about the toxicity. And one of his first patients who he gave it to eventually died of lithium toxicity. So for a while, Cade was actually prohibiting its use. But he backed off on the prohibition. He 
never did any further research on lithium, actually. And it wasn't until, you know, around 1970 that Cade began to get recognition for having started this. Today, lithium is considered the gold standard treatment for bipolar disorder, which affects one in 50 Australians. Globally, bipolar affects 45 million people. Lithium side effects can include weight gain, tremors, nausea and dizziness, but now when you're prescribed it, your blood levels are monitored closely. That helps avoid the risk of poisoning. When it works, it's extraordinarily effective. It really turns people's lives around. And I would say that for people with well-diagnosed sort of classical manic depressive illness, that is people who have episodes of a severe mania, excitement and agitation and all of the symptoms that go along with that and very deep depressions, about, I would say, 60% of those people or 60 to 70% actually stop having those episodes when they get treated with lithium. There's probably 20 or 30% who don't respond quite as well or respond partially, but probably somewhere around 60% of people with the severest forms of this illness actually get what I think is fair to call a cure or certainly very good control of their illness. That includes controlling or curbing the risk of suicide, which is around 20 times higher in patients with bipolar than the general population. It's part of what makes the disorder so devastating. That's one of the most important things that it does. More so than any other drug or therapy that's used in the treatment of bipolar illness, lithium reduces suicide drastically, and it does so more than any of the other treatments. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and today, how lithium, an element created during the Big Bang billions of years ago, something used in everything from batteries to ceramics, became the most effective treatment for bipolar disorder. And it's safe to say John Cade's discovery has saved millions of lives worldwide. Missy Robinson's is one of them. The lithium, it was my life saviour. It absolutely changed my life. Missy was having all the classic symptoms of bipolar when she was diagnosed in 2008 at the age of 28. Delusional thinking, erratic behaviour, insomnia, excessive spending, hypersexuality and more. The hypersexuality, you know, I was going out clubbing, picking up random guys and sleeping with them that I would not normally ever do that. During one manic episode, I went and bought a $30,000 car when I already had a car. Well, I guess for people who don't know anything about bipolar, like it can be debilitating to a person's life. It's incredibly debilitating. You know, people sort of think that mania, oh, you you know, it's like a high. It is, but it isn't. I mean, you're like a passenger to your own life. Hypermania is an enjoyable time when it's managed well. However, if it's not managed, being kicked into mania, you become delusional. You start to think that people are chasing you. The amount of times I ran away because I thought people were after me. And even when I was in a long-term relationship, you know, when the manic would hit, I would just completely become a different person. I would scream and I obviously have psychosis. I've experienced psychotic behaviour as well. It's very distressing and the humiliation and embarrassment that you feel even talking about it now gets me a bit emotional. It's very distressing because you're, you know that you're not that person.
So it wasn't until I went to the doctor when I actually tried my first attempt at committing suicide that I was diagnosed with depression and the doctor put me on an antidepressant which actually made me worse and it wasn't until I went to a psychologist who she suggested that I may have had bipolar that's when I was officially diagnosed with a psychiatrist after that. Missy was prescribed lithium pretty much immediately. What does it look like when you're taking it? What does it taste like? Uh, you know, tell me about that. There's no real taste. When I first started taking it, the capsules were quite big because I was used to, you know, whenever I'd had medication, it was like a little padded old tablet kind of thing. So I tried to treat it just like taking vitamins. I think definitely within four weeks, there was a noticeable change because I remember my mum saying, you sound a lot calmer and more stable and my thinking wasn't as erratic. I was able to have a conversation and stay on the same train of thought. <laughs> that was when the sort of we realised it was actually working. Missy no longer felt suicidal, sleepless or prone to self-harm. The one side effect she experienced was weight gain. It very much stabilised my mood and I was able to live a relatively functional existence. Missy's story could well end there, as it does for many patients who manage their bipolar disorder long-term with lithium. But Missy has had the misfortune of experiencing both the best of lithium treatment and the absolute worst. In 2014, after six years of living relatively well with the help of lithium, everything changed. I started a relationship and I'd been single for the majority of my adult life, so at the time, my psychiatrist was concerned as to how being in an emotional, romantic relationship would be for me. And I was struggling and obviously a bit anxious, so that's when the dosage increased. And over a course of time, he had made the decision to, you know, just take an extra one at night time or an extra one in the morning, that kind of thing. So it just slowly went from, I think when I first started taking lithium, I was taking 250 micrograms um, milligrams in the morning and at night. And by the time I was admitted to hospital, I was taking eight tablets a day. In December 2014, Missy was hospitalised for lithium poisoning. That was probably, I would say, of my entire mental health journey, the worst thing that ever happened to me and the worst experience. In the lead up to the hospitalisation, the lithium had actually caused me to gain a significant amount of weight over the course of the six years. So that was probably one of the most negative effects of taking lithium. I'd gained almost 30, 40 kilos. So when I had developed lithium poisoning, obviously not knowing that I had, I started to hallucinate. I had a couple of suicide attempts and I also had developed edema. So my body was so swollen that I could barely see. I actually had quite bad neurological damage and ended up with hypothyroidism and kidney damage. And what did the doctors say or, you know, how did they explain to you why you got poisoning or why this went so wrong? Because I imagine they were monitoring, you know, your dosage. Well, they were monitoring my dosage. I was supposed to be having regular blood tests every three months, which was as directed by my psychiatrist, and he just sort of stopped. It happened quite quickly. So when the dosage increased, before I think it only would have been two or three months, I was then admitted to hospital. So, I mean, I obviously can't comment on what they were thinking or what they were doing, but I wasn't having the regular blood tests because they weren't giving me the thing to go and get the blood test done. So I think once the level obviously got to a bit, it was the dangerous level, things just deteriorated so dramatically that there was not much they could do. 
Missy is lucky to be alive. She spent seven days in hospital and another six months recovering. She never took lithium again. These days, she manages her illness through other strategies, and she's got an emergency stash of medication on hand in case things get out of control. Lithium has been swapped out for another drug, though, called Risperidone. When I feel myself getting a little bit anxious, I have strategies in place that allow me to, I guess, deal with that so that things don't escalate. There have absolutely been times where I have been hypermanic, but because I've lived with this for so long now, I'm aware of the symptoms. I'm very open with my friends and family. So if they notice a change in my behavior or the way I speak, they'll let me know. I have an incredible relationship with my GP. So all of that is a big part of my management. Missy now acts as an ambassador for the national mental health charity, SANE, working to raise awareness about bipolar disorder. As for the whole experience of taking lithium, the good and the bad, she's remarkably zen about it all. It absolutely was a lifesaver at the time. It served its purpose and it definitely helped me through that really rough time at the beginning. I can't say what it would be like if I was, you know, if I had a, the doctors, when I got out of hospital, if they had said, right, we want you to get back on lithium. I don't know what I would be like now, obviously, but considering the life that I have now and the way I feel and the person I am, um, I'm very grateful because I might not have been able to achieve that if I hadn't been taking the lithium for six years. Even though the poisoning obviously is not great and I nearly died, I still believe that, again, if that hadn't have happened to me, I wouldn't be where I am today. And that's the way that I try and look at things. That's SANE Ambassador Missy Robinson on her experience with lithium treatment. One of the most fascinating bits of research I've come across while putting together this episode are the studies that look at the links between naturally occurring lithium in drinking water in certain parts of the world and lower rates of suicide, violent crime, and even dementia. It makes you wonder if the Romans, Greeks, and Native Americans were really onto something with their belief in the healing powers of mineral springs. Last year, a large systematic review investigated the link between naturally occurring lithium in drinking water and lower suicide rates. It looked at studies conducted around the world since the 1990s. Dr. Becky Strawbridge from the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London was one of the authors. And we found that across 15 studies from around the world, places that had higher levels of trace lithium in the tap water had lower suicide rates, basically. We wondered whether, you know, this might be to do with cultural factors or socioeconomic factors or indeed climate factors, but it didn't really seem like that was the case. So it does seem like there is something here. And how far back does the data go that you looked at? When did researchers first start studying or looking at the links between lithium and suicide rates? The first work happened in Texas, where there are some places where they have really high levels of trace lithium in the water. And the studies were done in the early 90s, I think 1991. They looked at a variety of places in Texas, some of which had particularly low levels and some of which had particularly high levels. They found that higher places basically had lower suicide rates. And so this kick-started some of the other studies that were done later. Many of the individual studies Dr. Strawbridge and her colleagues analysed found that lithium in drinking water correlated with lower suicide rates, but not all. The studies from Italy and the UK are two examples. They didn't all find what we 
determined to be a significant, statistically significant relationship. The interesting thing was that those that didn't find a statistically significant relationship were those where actually the levels were quite low in general in the areas that they measured. So it might be true that there's only a kind of anti-suicide effect once you get to a certain level. And so how compelling do you think the data is showing the link between, you know, lithium in the drinking water and lower suicide rates? It's surprisingly compelling, really, because we haven't seen anything that sort of explains why that would happen other than the levels of lithium themselves in the tap water. And we can't be sure about that. I think the first thing to do would be to try and get more data from as many places as we can really around the world. Then we can do some fancy stats to try and make sure that there isn't something else that explains this finding. So could there be a case for adding lithium to drinking water as a public health measure, like we do with fluoride? I would say that we don't have enough information yet to suggest that this is done. I mean, obviously, it's a big thing to do. We would need, firstly, more information, more data from around the world. And secondly, we'd probably need some randomised trials where different places in the world were trialled with adding lithium to the water to look at the effects of that, and some places weren't. And then you could see whether there's an effect. There's also safety. You've got to be really sure (laughs) about these things before you do them. So I wouldn't say that there's a case for that yet. As for Dr. Walter Brown's take? Maybe. If I were the king, I probably wouldn't do it. Those studies which show those correlations between suicide and criminal activity in lithium and water are very intriguing, but they don't immediately suggest a mechanism. And the levels of lithium are so low as to question the plausibility that doing anything biological. But some people have said that it may be that the levels are low, but that if you take enough lithium over time, maybe it has some effect. So I wouldn't say absolutely don't do it, but you know I don't think there's enough evidence right now to warrant it. The one thing that we haven't touched on in all of this is how lithium works in the brain to regulate mood and stop suicidal urges. That's because, quite simply, scientists don't yet fully know. No, I'm always asked that question. We know a lot about what lithium does to neurotransmitters, to so-called signaling molecules, to enzymes, to brain cells, even to nerve growth. But we don't know how it happens to work so successfully to prevent episodes of mating depression. We know a lot about what it does biochemically and biologically in the brain and to the metabolism of nerve cells, but we don't know which of its many activities account for its uh, therapeutic actions. That mystery makes lithium and its effects all the more remarkable. Well, on the one hand, it's amazing and astounding, and that's what I love about chemistry. 
But on the other hand, you know, that's what we are too. We're made of chemicals. All of the molecules in our body, all of our proteins, our blood, everything that makes us who we are physically is built out of these chemical elements. So the interactions of these systems with chemicals, with medicines, it's something that's both amazing and also something that it's not so surprising that we can elicit really incredible changes. What blows my mind is how lithium really turns the lives around of these people. It actually prevents these very dramatic psychiatric episodes. So, yeah, it has profound effects and its effects do blow my mind. That's Dr. Walter Brown, clinical professor of psychiatry at Brown University and author of the book Lithium, A Doctor, A Drug and a Breakthrough and before him, Associate Professor Alice Motion from Sydney University. Thanks also to SANE Ambassador Missy Robinson and Dr. Becky Strawbridge from King's College London. If this episode brought up any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen and our audio engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.